Thank you, brothers, very much. Thank you, Brother Zach, for Psalm 82. Well done. Thank you, Lord, for giving us something like that and teaching us the proper place of our civil rulers and even calling them gods. In John chapter 10 and verse 35, it tells us that that is the correct word. And Jesus said the integrity of the Bible depended upon that word being used. And so we want sometimes to refer to our leaders as gods because the Bible cannot be broken because it's the correct word there. Thank you, Jim, for leading our live singing after leading our recorded singing for many Sundays. Thank you, Joshua, for calling on the Lord to bless us. Will you open your Bibles with me to the precious chapter of Isaiah 63? Isaiah 63. God has led us by his providence to this chapter today. He has been very kind to us in the book of Isaiah. And I trust that he will be kind to us now. These two chapters, Isaiah 63 and 64, by the providence of God, go together. 60 through 62 were a very different theme, the glory of the Jewish church. And I hope you enjoyed seeing that theme. And I hope that even recently, I reminded you that in Isaiah 55, we had already had a hint of it, that God hath glorified thee, meaning the Jewish church, because God gave them all the blessings of his son and his spirit, his word, his ministry. It was all the Jewish church. That was chapter 60 through 62. These two chapters go together. They start out with a six-verse glorified praise of Almighty God delivering them from an inveterate enemy. And then it moves to a reflection of how kind and merciful God had been to the nation and how much He had loved them. And then it moves to a prayer. And that prayer starts right here in this chapter at verse 15, but the prayer ends at the end of chapter 64. 65 is totally different. 62 is different. These two chapters go together, and they have one theme. There's 31 verses that we need to take apart by the grace of God and explain to you. The Bible tells us that proper preaching, and you've heard it many times, but never forget it. Proper preaching is reading in the book, in the law of God, distinctly, and giving the sense and causing the people to understand the reading. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. We want to do that. These two chapters have one theme, and it is Israel in captivity in Babylon. Very easy to prove. And when the Lord gives us little tip-offs about the setting and the timing of a chapter, we should thank Him. Otherwise, these chapters are even more difficult than they are. So if you look in uh, chapter 63, and you look down at verse 18, the people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while, meaning we did not have Canaan very long before we were thrown out of it. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary, meaning the temple had been destroyed and trodden under feet of the Babylonians. That's in 63, so we get a setting and a timing now, Isaiah is prophesying 150 years in front of the release of the captives out of Babylon, but that's what prophecy is all about. That's why he's called a prophet. He's foretelling future things. At the end of chapter 64, you can see it again, verse 10. Thy holy cities are a wilderness. Zion is a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and our beautiful house, where our fathers praise thee, is burned up with fire. Oh, thank you, Lord. I wish I could share with you. You should be able to tell by my voice and maybe my face that when the Lord tells us the setting and timing of a passage like this, we should praise His great and glorious name. Because when He doesn't, it can be very difficult to figure out at times, and sometimes we may never figure it out, and so we gather the general lessons from it. When you look at these 19 verses in chapter 63... And I will try to manage my time and go through these today so that we end up at an even pace, the Lord willing. I know it seldom happens, but the Lord willing, we shall try to do that. The, I will not say enough for all of you about all of these verses, but they are dealt with 
in detail in this outline. I have put in a great deal of extra effort this week in the outline for chapter 63 especially. When you look at verses 1 through 6, it is God destroying Edom, an inveterate. That means a perpetual and hateful enemy of Israel. And one that he had a curse against from their very first father in the womb of his mother when he hated Esau. But there had been trouble between those two boys and their descendants perpetually. And I hope that you can get the situation in your minds that to have the captive Jews in Babylon and know that Cyrus is going to release them, but only a small band of 45,000 are going to make the 1,000-mile trek back to Judah and Jerusalem. And when they get there, it's going to be all rubble. There'll be nothing ready for them. But guess who had taken over the southern territory of Simeon and Judah's property, tribal inheritance? The Edomites. They were there. Remember, they were cheering on the Babylonians as they took the Jews captive, which I hope you read last evening in Psalm 137. If you read the chapters I gave you yesterday, and I gave you extra chapters, but it was not extra time I asked of you last night. I gave you extra chapters. It will make this the first six verses fall into place so easily. So those are the first six verses. Just imagine those Jews. Well, the Lord took care of them. And he took care of them in style, and they had asked him to take care of them. Because coming out of Jerusalem and on their trip to Babylon, the Babylonians had asked them to sing some of the songs of Zion, making fun of their religion. And that's what Psalm 137 is about. And yet in Psalm 137, there's there's sentiments similar to Psalm 122. David said, if I forget Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its cunning. And David's right hand was pretty cunning. And let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. And David had a pretty useful tongue. He could sing and speak poetry and preach and teach. He was great in those gifts. But he said, let me lose them both if Jerusalem is not my chief joy in this world. And then it goes on to say, Lord, remember. Remember those Edomites that said, raise it, R-A-Z-E, raise it to the ground tear that city to the ground as they cheered the Chaldeans on. And so when the the Lord's people speak a prayer like Psalm 137, your house is everything to me and you may abuse me. You may abuse me by taking away my gift of speech and the ability of my right hand, but I will not stop loving your church and city and worship in Jerusalem. In conjunction with that, remember what the Edomites did. Now see, God didn't need very much help because he already knew what the Edomites had done to them on their way out of Egypt when they would not let the Jews pass through their nation. And that was a horrible affront to God that those brothers, were Esau's descendants, treated Jacob's descendants that way. And that Esau's descendants would call on the Chaldeans and cheer them on and actually assisted them. Jeremiah and Ezekiel and half the minor prophets refer to the event. Edom was a huge enemy of the Jews. And so God was going to punish them for that. Edomites. Esau equals Harry. He was named Esau because he was Harry all over. He was named Edom because of the red pottage. Edom equals red. Esau equals Harry. Esau does not equal Edom. But Esau and Edom are the same body of people. The descendants of Esau are called the Edomites. Anyway, those are the first six verses. Now, after that, when you look, if you just look down at that chapter in front of you with 19 verses, the first six are kind of by themselves, just stuck in there with God wrecking vengeance on them, fulfilling the prophecy of chapter 34. If you read Isaiah 34 last evening, you got a version very similar to this, and you knew what it was about. It was about Basra and Mount Seir and and the Edomites and God's judgment on them and how he was going to wreck their nation. They would try to rebuild it, but he would pull it down. Malachi 1, 1 through 5 says that. And that all these creatures would find their new place in the former home of the Edomites. And 
And the Lord goes on for about 10 verses explaining them mating and finding nice cuddly places there and all these different kinds of creatures taking over the palaces and the fields and everything of the Edomites because God was going to destroy them. If you read the chapters, is what I'm referring to. I would never ask you to read a Bible chapter or to read a link or to read anything that wouldn't be for your profit in proportion to the time it takes for you to read it. I would never do it. I, I try to be faithful to that every day when I send you anything. Is this worth their time given how much is in their inbox? But it's very helpful. In verses 7 through 9, of this 63rd chapter, we have some precious verses that I think the words will ring in your ears. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord. Have you ever heard that before? Well, it's a reflection. It's the way to go to prayer. It's to remember what God has done in the past before you ask him to do something in the present or future. And so seven through nine is remembering his mercies and then 10 through, or his love. Let's call seven through nine his love and verses 10 through 14, his mercies. And then verses 15 through 19, begin the prayer for love and mercy to be shown toward them again. I have found, as I've explained to you, and we're ending the Isaiah very next Sunday, is the end. It's, I think it's perfect timing. If the governor continues to cooperate the way he is, we're going to finish Isaiah, and we are going to have ourselves some unique special service in two or three weeks from now when we can all be back in one place. And by the grace of God, we will make it the best we can to glorify God and to stir each other up. But the prayer begins in verse 15, and it runs through the end of 64. And if you see that, if you see that, then you say, I see it. 63 and 64 go together. Thank you for showing me. 60 to 62 go together. Thank you for showing me. And I'll show you that 65 and 66 go together next Lord's Day. Here we go. Isaiah 63. I've already told you a bit, some about Edom. The setting and the timing, I've already given you. I've already told you a little bit about Edom. Knowing the setting and timing helps us so much and why they have such a need to review past mercies and such a plaintive cry in their praying for God to have mercy on them. Their desperate condition in Babylon and their great need for God to favor them again is quite poignant. If this is Christ on the cross in the first six verses, then why the rest of these two chapters have beggars in need? Because it's not Christ on the cross. I am so sorry that you have ever heard a sermon or a song about the, six, the first six verses of Isaiah 63 as being applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read it to you, the first verse. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. It's a question all the way to that point. Here's the answer. I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Amen. For the first six verses, we have questions and answer, two of them. The first one's in verse one. And so the question is asked, and this isn't the only place this is found in the Bible. I mean, the Song of Solomon is filled with question and answer. Um, it's just another way of teaching. It's another way of enhancing the presentation of content. Um, it's, it's graphical, and it, it, may, it, it gets you engaged because a dilemma is set, and then the dilemma is answered. Who is this mighty conqueror coming out of Edom? And the answer is, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. The next five verses, two through six, are a little different, and I've broken them apart in my outline for this chapter because the content is somewhat different. In the first verse, it's who. In verses two through five, it's what. It's a person in verse one. It's an event in verses two through five. And so if you pull that apart and look at both of them, we want to get them both answered correctly. The first verse is Almighty God. That's Almighty God coming out of Edom after having wrecked vengeance by a number of his servants on the Edomites. And you say, 
but he's going to say that he did it by himself without anyone. Of course. Yes, that's true. But when God uses someone, how important are they to the action? Didn't we learn this in Isaiah chapter 10? You're just a saw in my hand. I'm shaking you. You are not moving my arm. It is my arm that I brought everyone out of Egypt. It is my arm that I'm going to destroy 185,000 of your soldiers. And so keep that in mind. I am not really following my outline right now because my outline intimidates me greatly. It's way too long and has way too much material. So we just got to look at these verses and I'll try to remember what's in my outline and, and glance at it from time to time. It is, it is Almighty God wrecking vengeance on that particular enemy of Israel that Israel had said, remember them, Lord, remember, Lord, what they did in our deepest, darkest hour of need. They assisted the Chaldeans. They caught stragglers and turned them, and those that were escaping, and turned them over to the Chaldeans. They stole assets out of, off our property and out of our city while we were under siege and waging a war. Remember them. They said, raise it. That is your city. That city is called by your name. That city has your temple. Remember. Oh, oh the Lord doesn't forget such prayers, brethren. Right. And there's martyrs right now under the throne of God that are praying for vengeance. And the Bible tells me that there will be vengeance yeah. for those that took their lives. Verses 2 through 5. So the question now is, wherefore, why, wherefore, Art thou red in thine apparel, and thy garments like him that treadeth in the wine fat? Why are you all red, red like the bloody red of red grapes? Here's the answer. I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. For I will tread them in mine anger, and trample them in my fury." And their blood shall be sprinkled upon my garments, and I will stain all my raiment. For the day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. And I looked, and there was none to help, and I wondered that there was none to uphold. Therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me, and my fury it upheld me. And I will tread down the people in mine anger, and make them drunk in my fury, and I will bring down their strength to the earth." Amen and amen. This is Almighty God wrecking vengeance on a perpetual enemy of the Israelite Jewish people, and that is Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the, the enemies of Jacob and his descendants. God had a curse on Esau's descendants from their mother's womb, from Rebecca, Rachel's womb. And they're now the inhabitants of Edom. God told Rebekah, excuse me, God told, while Esau was in her womb, that the twin Jacob would be over him. Jacob married Rachel. Esau was profane in religious things, and the Bible tells us that about him. As soon as he grew up, he married Hittite wives, which caused his parents a great deal of grief. His father, his family, I mean, would not allow Israel to pass through Egypt, from Egypt to Canaan. We're told that David crushed them on an occasion and put them under tribute. And so did Jehoram, and so did Amaziah. And when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, then the Edomites were there cheering them on, as I've mentioned several times, to get you to feel the need for vengeance on this group of people that from the beginning were enemies. You know, Esau had said, as soon as my father dies, I will kill Jacob. That animosity had already been there. And it, and, it, and it continued to be there, although on the great occasion where Jacob needed it, Esau fell on his neck and kissed him, even though he came with 400 men, and Esau only had a bunch of young boys. So that's Edom, and we want to remember that. Now we have a major issue. Who is the, per, the being, the person, in verse 1? Who is he? Many want to make him the Lord Jesus Christ, because they operate by the sound of words rather than the sense of words. And because they see the word save and redeem and salvation and blood, that's it. It's got to be Jesus. 
And so they jump to a conclusion of which there is no basis whatsoever. Now, we have a song in one of our books. It's number 194 in the Burgundy book that is entitled, Who is This That Comes From Far? Taken from this first verse. This past week, as part of my study efforts for you, is I reviewed 22 hymns taken from Isaiah 63.1. There is a link on your computer called Cyber Hymnal that if you use it, it has 20 different ways that you can search for any hymn. And one of the ways is to put in a scripture verse on which that hymn is supposed to be built. And there's 22 of them coming from Isaiah. Listen, they have in five figures of songs well laid out, pictures of the authors, pictures, a lot of material. They've been at it for about 25 years. But it's an error. It is a serious error to make this the Lord Jesus Christ because there's no redemptive blood here. There's no blood of Calvary here. This is the blood of his enemies here. And he splattered himself with their blood. And we need all you have to do is read it, and you see that. But there's so much temptation to take a verse that has a great ring to it. And trust, these verses have a great ring, don't they? Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Basra that is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save? Well, God speaks in righteousness, and God had declared he would destroy the Jews' enemies, and he did so. And he was mighty to save because they needed a salvation, and they had prayed for one. Lord, remember, we can't deal with this enemy. You deal with them. And so he did. Yeah, of course he's mighty to save. But the word save in the Bible doesn't always mean Calvary. The word save in the Bible isn't always the legal transaction of Jesus dying for our sins on the cross. There's all kinds of salvations in the Bible. And reading through Isaiah, we have run into those salvations. It's salvations from different enemies. It was the Moabites in one chapter. It was the Egyptians in another chapter. It was the Babylonians. And here, it's the Edomites. And this theme is preached throughout your Old Testament against the Edomites. Many prophets refer to them. There is a prophecy exclusively about them. And it's a little book of your minor prophets called Obadiah. Obadiah has one theme. It's against the Edomites. Instead of fully enjoying the wonderful description of God that we have here, we have to undo pathetic Arminian ideas of the verse. It is so discouraging studying because those six verses are glorious. That is your God. In that God you may put your trust. He will save you from your enemies of all kinds, although this particular case is a particular enemy with a particular city at a particular time that they needed that enemy to be put in its place for them to be able to come back from Babylon and take Judah and the city of Jerusalem. Then there's the identity of the event. What event is it? Since there is blood connected to the mighty conqueror, they only see Calvary and legal redemption. They overlook to varying degrees that the blood is the blood of his enemies, not his blood. And that's a huge difference. And he's going to make people drunk with his fury rather than drinking the fury. Jesus Christ drank the cup. This is not Jesus Christ drinking the cup. This is Almighty God making the Edomites drink the cup. It's so different. It's different in every clause. It's only the imagination of men who operate by sound instead of sense. In blissful ignorance, they invent a war that saved their souls, though the foe vanquished is people. I will trample down people. Well, people aren't the cause of your eternal fear, your, the possible consequence of eternity in hell. In blissful ignorance, they invent Jesus crushing a winepress but he drank God's wrath in the New Testament. In blissful ignorance, they moved Jesus wrecking vengeance from his second coming to his first. In blissful ignorance, they forced Jesus at Calvary into this vision, though the New Testament never quotes it. In blissful ignorance, they forced Calvary into this passage instead of using Isaiah 34 to give them some direction. Oh, and I could go on and on. Lord, have mercy upon us. Why is Edom important? Because Edom was an enemy of the Jews from Esau. 
They blocked Moses, they helped Babylon, and they were a close neighbor. This was not a neighbor at a distance. This was one adjacent next to them. Same border. Remember how Malachi 1 says from the border, you'll be able to see the difference? Right there. Next door neighbors. What are those poor Jews going to do coming back? After a long journey with no home prepared for them, just rubble. Now the Lord took care of that. And the Lord took care of it in style. And the Lord took care of it in a grand way. And we can look at these verses and we can say, that is my God. I can trust in Him against any enemy. And so we should. Why are you red in your apparel? Verse 2, you look like you've been trampling red grapes all day. Verse 3, I've been in the wine press. The wine press of anger and fury. And their blood is going to be sprinkled. Now it jumps back and forth from past tense to future tense. Just the way the prophet Isaiah has done all the way through. But it's an event that hasn't happened yet. In Isaiah 34, it was still future. But it was happening at this time. It was happening while they were in captivity. Nebuchadnezzar made other expeditions into this region that Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about. Do you remember the cup of, of red wine that Jeremiah had to take to all the neighboring nations and said, drink this. Drink this because this is a symbol that if you don't submit to Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to destroy your nation. That's Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 27, and several chapters in Ezekiel. And Edom is one of the ones mentioned that Nebuchadnezzar... So it'd be, it's a process. When you read Isaiah 13 about Babylon being destroyed by the Medes and the Persians, the Medes and the Persians did not level Babylon so that doleful creatures inhabited what had once been the city. That was a, remember? It's about like a 1,500-year process. Do you remember this? I've gone over it with slides. I've tried to be as careful and as thorough as I can to remind you so that when you see a destruction like this in verses 1 through 6, it doesn't all have to happen at once. It can happen in stages, just like it did with Babylon, though when you read Isaiah 13, it sounds like it all happens at one time with the Medes and the Persians. But the Medes and the Persians didn't destroy Babylon. They took it by military stratagem and used the city as their capital for a while until they moved to Shushan. And then it took, you know, Alexander the Great was in Babylon. And you just got to, we learned that. We learned that. So we know it when we come here. What relief would it be if Cyrus released Israel from Babylon and Edom waited for their return? And so the Lord was taking care of them already. And so in this context right here of being in Babylon, of being fearful, and of calling upon God for past mercies, like he had destroyed Egypt, he destroyed Edom, and they could come back, and they could rebuild that city. You see, they had some opposition, but they didn't have an opposition like an Edomite army. They just had a few rabble-rousers that came out, made fun of them, mocked them, sent ambassadors back to Persia to try to discourage them and try to get the work stopped by legal mandate, um, but it didn't work. But the Edomites were taken care of and humbled and put in their place, though there are a lot of historical battles that were fought with them after this. Judas Maccabees killed 20,000 of them in a particular battle, and so there are commentators that will come to Isaiah 63. Oh, it's Judas Maccabees! But uh, Judas Maccabees falls apart if you try to apply some of these rules to him. There is, one, there is one being that speaks in righteousness and makes promises and fulfills every one of them exactly as he stated, and that is Almighty God. Amen. I that speak in righteousness, I am mighty to save. And so verse 3, and look at verse 4, for the day of vengeance is in mine heart. What vengeance? Remember, Lord. Psalm 137.7. Remember, Lord, what they did. The day of vengeance is in mine heart, it is, and the year of my redeemed is come. Who's the redeemed? The nation of Israel. I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to save them. I'm going to deliver them from the hands of the Edomites. And thus it runs. Look at, you, know, you look at that 63.4, and you come if you can hold your place there and just flip back to Isaiah 34, look at verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. Isn't that wonderful that we have little statements like that in our Bibles? Isaiah 34, verse 8. For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance. Isaiah 34 is about Edom, also known as Idumea, the Greek and Roman word for Edom, meaning red. 
Verse 8, For it is the day of the Lord's vengeance and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. So there's a controversy. And that controversy is the fratricide that is a brother wishing and, been, and being participatory in killing a brother. That's what it's... The, the minor prophets take Edom apart for looking on his brother's deepest, darkest, most terrible day and assisting the enemies in it. And the Lord considered it a controversy of Zion. So when you, when you see this, the day of vengeance, it's not the day of salvation, the cross of Calvary, it's God wrecking the vengeance on the Edomites that Israel had prayed for and the year of his redeemed had come. It was time to save Israel by putting Edom down into their proper place. When I, and I looked, there was none to help me, so I did it myself. I raised up men that would come and do it, like he raised up Sennacherib to be his rod to spank Israel. But the rods don't move by themselves. God did it with his arm. There was none to uphold, therefore mine own arm brought salvation unto me in my fury. Did Jesus die on the cross out of fury, or did Jesus die on the cross out of love? This is out of fury. This is salvation out of fury. So what kind of a salvation is it? It's delivering Israel from their enemies by destroying the enemies in furious jealousy and revenge for what they had done. We have learned in going through the book of Isaiah that terms like redeem, save, save, salvation, righteousness is not referring to the legal transaction on the cross except in Isaiah 53, where it's very clearly distinguished from elsewhere. But God is righteous, and He will be righteous in chastening His people, and He will be righteous in punishing those He used to chasten them. And He is righteous in everything He says. He's righteous in His law. And the gospel that's going to go forth from His Messiah would be the declaration of righteousness in the earth to which the Gentiles would come. And He would save His people in the Old Testament his Jewish church, from their enemies. He would save them out of Babylon because he had a Redeemer and a Savior for them. He had his shepherd, Cyrus, to deliver them. And you've got to remember those terms so that when you run into save, redeemed, here, you don't thank Calvary. Let's go to the next lesson, which is down at verse 7. Down at verse 7. And what precious words they are and you should know them. If you've read your Bible, you know when you read your Bible, certain verses jump out at you, and if Isaiah 63, 7 has never jumped out at you, reconsider your reading method. Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9. I will mention... It's a huge change. We had question and answer for six verses. Huge change. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Amen. This is God's Old Testament love for his nation of Israel, bringing them up out of Egypt, taking care of them in the wilderness, getting that next generation into the land of Canaan, destroying seven nations there, planting them in their own homes, cities, wells, vineyards dug, and dividing the inheritance to them that he had given of that territory on earth. And the Lord was full of loving kindnesses. What a special word that the Bible would use, loving kindnesses. Benevolent treatment of another person due to deep personal affection. Loving kindnesses. Kindnesses. Benevolent consideration and care. Helpful benevolence toward another person instead of loving out of deep personal affection. Just to let, I just want you to think about the word. I love every word of God. And I just want to savor and savor what loving kindnesses describes. And it's in this verse twice. And it's the history of the Jews. And when we think back over it, the Lord was so full of loving kindnesses 
toward them. I will mention, because he is going to mention how loving and how kind and what great things God had done for Israel before he breaks forth into prayer, because he's going to call on God to do some of those things again. But he starts by remembering. It is good for us to remember what he did for others. It's in the Bible. It's good for us to remember what he's done for others that we know, and it's good for us to remember what he's done for us in the past. And those are three witnesses that have been taught to this church. That if you want to build your faith, you will remember what he did in the Bible, what he did to others of your brethren, what he's done to you. And by combining those three together, you should be able to pray and not let him rest. Because you know he wants to do great things for you. All that the Lord had bestowed on them, the goodness in delivering them out of the land of Egypt. Not only were they delivered in style with ten plagues and the whole army drowned in the Red Sea, and some of this we're going to come to in these chapters, but they got the wealth of Egypt on their way out. They plundered Egypt, and they didn't have to break into anybody's house. There was no B&E. The inhabitant, the Egyptians came out and forced all their stuff on them. And this is what you're supposed to understand from verses 7 through 9, that in all their affliction he was afflicted. Listen, when they were slaving under the taskmasters of Pharaoh, it's, it does not say they prayed. It says their sighing and their sorrow came up into heaven. And God was moved by how hard they were having to work down there. So he said, I'm going to get Moses in here to do something about this. It's, it's the last three verses of chapter 2, and it's chapter 3, verses 7 through 9, about how their sighing came up into heaven because they were being pressed. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. I'm just using that as an example. Here's another thing we got to correct. And the angel of his presence saved them. And I'm just going to do, can I do this in one minute? Everybody wants to make that Jesus. Here we go again in the same chapter. The angel of his presence is Je my Jesus isn't an angel. My Jesus is the king of angels. All angels, principalities, and powers are subject to my Jesus. They make this Jesus. Because see, they've got an eternal son, and that eternal son can pop up anywhere they want him. He pops up at Abraham's tent. He pops up wrestling with Jacob. He pops up discussing the future of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, he pops up as the captain of the Lord's host. He pops up everywhere. What is he? He's the angel of the Lord. That's a period. Period. He's the angel of the Lord, the angel of his presence. He's the angel of the Lord. So that when he appears, and he appears over and over and over and over again, it says an, a man was there, God was there, and an angel was there. Now, you all know that about Jacob, right? The Bible tells us very clearly that he wrestled with a man, he wrestled with God, and he wrestled with an angel. Which one is true? Yes, all three are true. What about the burning bush? Was the burning bush a bush? Just a bush talking to Moses? Let me turn aside and look at this thing. Or was there an angel there? Or was there God there? There was an angel. And the angel said... Take off thy shoes because you're standing on holy ground, because my name is, because he was speaking on behalf of God, because he was the angel of his presence. It was as if God were there. The captain of the host, same thing. Who art thou? Take your shoes off. What are you asking about me for? Take your shoes off. You're standing on holy ground. So there's God by an angel in the form of a man. Over and over. Why is this difficult for people? An angel appeared to Mary and said, Thou shalt conceive in thy womb and shalt call his name Jesus. Before that conception, before that birth, there wasn't a Jesus. There was the Word of God. There was God. But there were always the angels after he created them. And so let me get off this thing. I said one minute, and there go several minutes. The fact that we have to undo so many false interpretations in the Bible because of eternal sonship, wanting to have Christophanies, Christ, and Christology of the Old Testament, when Christ isn't in the Old Testament, except by prophecy and by covenant design. This is the angel of the Lord. Those angels popped up everywhere to deliver the Jews 
on their way in the wilderness. And sometimes they could say, take off your shoes because they were representing God. And sometimes they would speak on the behalf of God because they were the angel of his presence. In his pity, he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Do you remember in a previous chapter that God made fun of the idols of the heathen because they had to be carried? They have to carry their gods, but I carry you. And so we have it again right here. Now in the middle of it, and these verses are important, he said, they are my people. Who's he talking to? He's talking to himself. He said, Isaiah 63, 8, he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. You say, how, what in the world did he mean by that? He was putting the best covenant construction on his relationship with Israel that he could. These are my people because I have chosen them and I am committed to them and I am going to give them every chance that I possibly can. They are my precious children. Is not Ephraim my precious son? From, from Jeremiah 31, 18 through 20, this, is, this verse is going to help you in just a minute. Do you understand this verse right here? It's God's covenant commitment to a people. You say, but he knew they were going to lie. Yes, he did but he put the best construction on them and he committed himself to them as if they wouldn't, even though he knew they would. He knew they would and so did his leaders. Joshua in Joshua 24, before he died said, ye cannot serve the Lord because he knew that they would not be able to live up to the righteous standard that God had for his people. Surely, he said, surely they are my people. Children that will not lie, so he was their Savior. This is the Lord. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, verse 9. I will mention the loving kindnesses of the Lord, verse 7. This is verse 8. He said, surely they are my people. I am committed to them. I have chosen you not because you're the largest, but you're the smallest. But I have set my love upon you because I loved you. I have chosen to love you. You're my children. You'll do well. You'll, you'll do well. You're dear to me. You'll never lie to me. You're a precious son. Now, when they pushed him long enough, and he was very patient with them, but when they pushed him long enough, then he did, and he did chasten them. Yes. But did he recover them? Yes. yes, because they were still. Is not Ephraim my dear son? Ever since I spake against him, my bowels have moved for him. Okay, I got to go on. If you want more you got to do a little bit of work on your, on your own. Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9, are reflecting on the love that God had for the nation of Israel. 10 through 14, reflecting on His mercy. Because notice what we get in verse 10, we have an ugly disjunctive, but, because instead of them being good, instead of them never lying, like verse 8 says, look what they did, and they did it terribly. And so I read to you verses 10 through 14, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. Therefore he was turned to be their enemy, and he fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old, Moses and his people, saying, Where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name, that led them through the deep, as an horse in the wilderness, that they should not stumble. As a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. Now we have some pronouns in this, these few verses here that we need to wrestle with a little bit, but the wrestling can only be in the, in the dark room of your pastor's house because you're just going to get the answer. And if you want to see hours and hours of work of laying out the options that you have and the problems with each option, you're going to have to refer to the outline. I'm just going to tell you. And verse 8 set the stage of God talking to himself. And then the pronoun that opens up, verse 11, is he. And who is the he based on what we have in verse 
10. But they rebelled and vexed his. There's a male, single, singular in 10, his Holy Spirit. Therefore, he was turned to be their enemy and he fought against them. Then he remembered what he had done for them. He, God, remembered them, Israel and Moses, and what he had done. And he say he's speaking to himself. Moses isn't speaking about Moses, and Moses' people aren't speaking about Moses' people. This is God speaking to himself. This is not the only place in the Bible that he does this. And the Lord tipped us off with verse 8. I'm serious, verse 8 helps. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. And there's other places like it, but I do not have time I have lived up to my promise to you that it would be one sermon per chapter, and that does not mean that there was a deficiency in study or in written materials that are available. When you see this outline, you will say, I can't read that. I I promise you. Because I want the truth of this. Now let me tell you something. If this isn't God, and, and He is a collective noun for Israel, Nothing changes really in the lesson except that you miss out on how God views sinful children. That he, he starts thinking about them before they repent. Uh, you already know that, don't you? Otherwise, we would never repent. He's already thinking about us, and he does things to poke us, convict us, lead us to repentance before we repent. I need a paper shuffler up here. If it be asked, does God reason like this in mercy before repentance? We answer, yes. First, if he didn't, he would consume and destroy all souls. Did we encounter that just a few chapters ago? That the souls would not be able to survive me? If I didn't think this is too hard, I'm going to back off and help them out of this rebellion of theirs? Second, does he get a greater name by pure mercy? And have we been taught that so far? He gets a greater name by pure mercy. Mercy where there isn't repentance yet, but it's the mercy that causes the repentance. Third, he operates by a covenant when he deals with Israel. And so there is another level of operation rather than just, I'm God and you're Israel. There is a third element, the covenant. I made a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to that I will be faithful, even if it means I have to show mercy to some people that are driving me crazy. You say, are there examples of that? Are there examples of Yes. And he remembered it for the cause of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Let me give you a New Testament one. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved, for the Father's sakes. There's his operation at a covenant level. And fourth, this is the only way he can convict the rebellious to repent, is that he moves first and does something for us by grace. Otherwise, it's not of grace, it's by our power. And it's by God's providence. What made David repent? Did David, did David text Nathan and say, can we have lunch today because I have something important to tell you? Or did Nathan bust in on David and tell him a story that got David all riled up with vengeance? And then Nathan said, Thou art the man. Who moved first? God through Nathan or David? David was a raging inferno of of wrath until the finger came out and pointed at him, Thou art the man. So verse 11 is God speaking, and he speaks down through verse 13, and verse 14 is a transition moving into the prayer. Just like verse 8 has a transition. Look at verse 8. He speaks, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. Then there is an insertion by Isaiah under inspiration, so he was their Savior. See, that's not his words. That's, that's a description of it. And so we've, we have these words coming down to verse 14. As a beast goeth down into the valley... The Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. So didst thou lead thy people to make thyself a glorious name. And see, there's some of the explanation right there. To make thyself a glorious name at the end of verse 14. It's also at the end of verse 12. To make himself an everlasting name. 
But God is asking these questions of himself in verse 11. He remembered the days of old, Moses and his people saying, where is he? He's speaking about himself. Where is that God that was kind to them? Because notice, we have, in verse 10, he had turned to be their enemy. This God that was the potter and that was the father of Israel was their enemy in verse 10. So as we progress through this chapter, he's an enemy. But now he says this, he remembers. And while I was their enemy, and while I fought against them, but they were still his people by covenant. While I fought against them, I remembered the way I used to treat them. Was, was, it, was it a faithful, loving generation that he brought out of Egypt? Or did they murmur and complain every step of the way until he dropped their carcasses in the wilderness? He remembered, where, where, is, where is he that brought them up out of the sea with the shepherd of his flock? The shepherd is Moses. Where is he that put his Holy Spirit within him? Him is Moses. God put the Holy Spirit in Moses. And when the job got too big for Moses, God took of the Spirit that was in Moses and put it on 70 elders. Further question, verse 12, that led them by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm. It's God's glorious arm. It's God asking, where is that God that with his glorious arm took care of them instead of fighting them? Dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. And it's one of the greatest events in the Bible, and that is the deliverance of Israel, the church of God, through the Red Sea. Them going through on dry ground and the Egyptian army drowning. Because here's the dry ground. Look at the tender care of this God that led them through the deep, meaning it was not some shallow end of the Red Sea. Like Bible scholars want to say, they went through the deep as in horse in the wilderness that they should not stumble. They were led. A good rider... In, in very uneven, rocky terrain, will get off his horse and take the horse by the bridle and lead the horse very slowly where it can place one hoof at a time and not trip, stumble, fall, or break one of those precious legs of a horse. And so that's, this is God's care. It was dry. They didn't have to wade through the Red Sea. They didn't have to worry about sinkholes in the Red Sea. They didn't slip and, sli they didn't slip and slide in mud and slime at the bottom. It was what kind of ground? dry ground. And so we have 11 through 13, and then we have this transitional verse, as a beast goeth down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord caused him to rest. That him is a collective noun. Has to be. But notice what it says about the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of God in verse 10. We have the Spirit of God in verse 14 in the Old Testament. In verse 10, he's their enemy. In verse 14, he is their helper and led them to rest. And then the prayer takes up in verse 15. Look down from heaven. They're going to be aggressive, and they need to be aggressive, but they are going to be incredibly humble because they are going to confess their faults and their sins as if they were the worst nation ever and as if Isaiah were part of them, just like Daniel. I'm getting a little tiny bit ahead of myself but if you did not read Daniel 9 last night, again, you're, you're going to miss out, especially in chapter 64. Daniel 9 included himself in every clause about the sinfulness of those people, and he said there was no goodness in them at all, and they rebelled against every commandment and every prophet and every bit of instruction and every statute and precept, but we know Daniel didn't live like that at all, and neither did Isaiah. But Isaiah is going to use similar language because they are praying as intercessors for the sins of a nation over many generations, which is what caused the captivity in Babylon. The captivity in Babylon was not just God getting angry someday because he got up and was in a bad mood. The captivity in Babylon was the result of hundreds of years of wickedness, accumulated reigns of wicked kings. Very important to remember when we come to 64. Okay, we, we've handled three difficulties so far in Isaiah 63. One through six is not Jesus, it's Almighty God. Uh, oh, there's more than three. Because uh, number three is the angel of his presence in verse nine. Number eight is God talking to himself. And four is in, number, in verse 11, God talking to himself. And if you want to make the collective noun in verse 14, problem number five, you're welcome to it because that's, that's a collective noun unless you make it Moses. Because the issue here is them coming out of Egypt and going through the Red Sea. And, and we like it when the Lord tells us what event is under consideration. He was, 
You know, when they came up out of the Red Sea, do you know how much their lives had changed? Can you, what happened to their enemy? Was he just back home temporarily, like after each plague? Call, ask your God to take this plague off and I'll let you go. Was he back home? No, he was drowned in the Red Sea. What was jingling in their pockets? All the wealth of Egypt. And then Moses led them to some palm trees and some springs of water, and they drank. And they, cel- and they celebrated on the shore of the Red Sea. Their lives had totally changed. It's wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the loving kindnesses of the Lord and how he carried them in his arms. You know, when the Bible says, underneath of the everlasting arms, think about how tender God is in taking them through on dry ground. If it would have been four or five inches of slime at the bottom, would that have been easy to take families through? I mean, it was just perfect. All of it was perfect. And here comes the prayer. Look down from heaven and behold from the habitation of thy holiness and of thy glory. Where is thy zeal and thy strength? The sounding of thy bowels and of thy mercies toward me. Are they restrained? Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not. Thou, O Lord, art our Father, our Redeemer. Thy name is from everlasting. O Lord, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake, the tribes of thine inheritance. The people of thy holiness have possessed it but a little while. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. So this is after reflection on God's love, 7 through 9. After reflection on God's mercy toward them as sinners, because verse 10 is very sinful, verses 11 through 14 is very kind, that he was, he was so nice to them, bringing them out of Egypt. After reflecting on love and after reflecting on mercy, the prayer is for love and mercy. You are our Father, and we can't worship you in the trouble that we're in right now. Where's your zeal? You've promised us zeal. And you know, this is a book that told us about the zeal of God toward his people. Where's your strength? Where's your might? This mighty one, mighty to save? Save us. We're in Babylon. The whole place is a mess at home. He took care of Edom, but see, there's other things that have to be taken care of. They have to be released from the most impregnable city on earth and get all the way back there safely to rebuild that city and that temple. Verse 15, is, it should be easy. Where, where is the sounding of thy bowels? You know, the internal part of a person that makes noises at times, but it turns upside down because when we have strong feelings toward someone, it can affect our innards. innards. And so these are the bowels, the bowels of compassion. They're described in the New Testament. They're described in the Old. You know, we, tip, we think of our bowels in only one way as 30 feet of hose getting food to the outdoors. But that's not bowels in the Bible. Bowels in the Bible are your compassion and feelings toward others. And so the the prayer is aggressively, where's your zeal? You're the God of zeal. Where's your strength? Where's your bowels for us? And that's verse 15. Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us. Can a nursing woman forget her sucking child? You say no. But God said, yet they may. But I will never forget thee. Same thing here except it's not a nursing mother, it's Abraham and Jacob. <laughs> Doubtless thou art our father, though Abraham be ignorant of us, and truly he was, because he was dead. And, but the real force of it is, even if, even if Abraham didn't know anything about us, and we do consider him our father, and, and Jacob, we are called the children of Israel, because Jacob equals Israel equals our father, Abraham and Jacob are our father. But even if they didn't acknowledge us and they ignored us, we don't really care because thou art our father. That is verse 16. Doubtless, doubtless, thou art our father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us and Israel acknowledge us not, still you're our father. Thou, O Lord, art our father. Notice the emphasis on it. Our Redeemer, thy name is from everlasting because he's O Lord, Jehovah. Verse 17, O Lord, Jehovah, why hast thou made us to err from thy ways and hardened our heart from thy fear? Return for thy servant's sake, 
Return. We're the tribes of thine inheritance. We're your inheritance in this world. Return for us and help us. Does God make men err from his way by infusing evil into their hearts so that they turn from his way in sin? Never. Not a chance. James 1, 13 through 16 says, Never think that about God. God never implants evil in us or creates lust in us because we have plenty for him to work with all on our own. Does he ever arrange circumstances for us to sin? Yes, he does. If we sin, can he withdraw grace from us that makes us harder? Yes, he does. If we sin against him or he has an occasion, can he turn us over to the devil without violating our will? But letting the devil have us for a little period of time like he did David and like he did Peter, both men. God had an issue with Israel. It's, we're told in 2 Samuel 24 and verse 1, in 1 Chronicles 21 and verse 1, the corresponding passage, it says that God turned David over to Satan and Satan moved against Israel. And so the Lord's able to do things like that in this particular place. Because Israel did not accept and submit to the teaching of their prophets, but set up idols in their hearts and stumbling blocks of iniquity in their minds, God would give them what they were looking for. And so severe is this judgment that they burned their children in the fire to other gods because God let them think about it and just took their minds away from other, more rational ways of worshiping God. You say, where is that in the Bible? Ezekiel chapter 20, around verse 25, and it runs for several verses that I will show you. And it's Ezekiel 14 in front of that where it says to Ezekiel, when they come to you, and they say that they want to inquire of the Lord, but they have a stumbling block of iniquity in their heads, and they have an idol in their hearts, I myself will answer them. I am going to deceive the prophet that speaks, and I am going to deceive them. I will give them a wrong message, because they have already chosen a lie of worshiping an idol instead of me. That is verse 17. It shouldn't be a problem. It's like when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Did God infuse wickedness into Pharaoh? No. Pharaoh was automatically proud. All God did was irritate him by Moses a little bit and ask him for something that was going to cost his treasury. And so he fought back. He hardened his heart. God hardened his heart by restraining grace from him. And you know, if God did not show grace toward us, our hearts can harden so fast and we can turn against the things of the word of God. They, God did not infuse evil. They rebelled against God, and so he withdrew his grace in their lives. Things started to go from bad to worse. They got angry about things. He would, rem he would remind them of pagan idols around them that needed child sacrifice in order to be heard. David sinned. There's so many examples in the Bible, and I can't preach a whole sermon on this one verse. I, I preached 10 sermons on it. A number of years ago, it's called the dominion of God. Do you want to read all about how God manages the hearts of men and is always without iniquity in the matter? It's called the dominion of God series. And, and now it's like 18 years old. I think it was like 2000, I don't know. It was a long time ago. I was another man. But here, here we are right here. David, David sinned. It was time for kings to go to battle. David sinned. David was in bed and David got out of bed and David was discontent, and David did not go down the hall and open the door and use the doorknob on one of the bedrooms for his harem that he had. And God is going to remind him shortly that he had given him a harem. All of his master's wives, all of Saul's wives and concubines he had, plus all of his own wives. Instead, he's discontent. He's upset. He's, he's discouraged. He's angry about his life. He's up off his bed. He's, he's wandering. You know why I'm saying it and describing it this way? Because I want every one of you convicted whenever you're like this. He did not go to battle when he should have gone to battle. Every day we get up and we have a job to do and we don't do it. We ask God to put some stumbling block in our way. And so there's David. He goes on to his rooftop. Instead of being with one of his wives, instead of being in his bed, instead of praying, instead of being in the field with his men, and he sees Bathsheba taking a bath under the protection of night. And you know where that went. Did, is God responsible for David's adultery? No, David said, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this iniquity in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when you judge me. He knew exactly. And so you should know exactly about verse 17. Come back. 
verse 18, the people of thy holiness, we Jews, we, we your nation, the nation of Israel, your holy people have possessed it but a little while. We've only had our land a thousand years. We've only had the temple 400 years. Those are the numbers. Our adversaries have trodden down thy sanctuary. We want that temple to stand forever. We want to worship you forever in that place. We are thine. Thou never bearest rule over them. They were not called by thy name. If you want to learn something practical and what we should get out of Isaiah 63, God is mighty to save. God is loving and merciful toward his people, so much so that he even talks to himself about them and overlooks them and sends his Holy Spirit that had been fighting with them to redeem them and give them rest and how to pray and how to appeal to God. We are your people. They are not your people. We are your people. Will you show us a little different favor than you show toward them? We know that you make your son to rise on the evil and the good and your reign to come on the just and the unjust, but would you show us some exceptional favor? We are thy people. This is Isaiah 63. I'm sorry for the way that I went through it. There's a lot of material here. There's good things here. We've, we've tried to correct some false interpretations that many of us have heard or read many times in our lives. It isn't Jesus Christ in 1 through 6. And you say to me, are there other passages in the Bible that are sort of like Isaiah 63, 1 through 6 about God? Try Psalm 18 on for size. I mean, there's God riding the clouds of heaven. You know, when I look at that, I think of Jesus' second coming because it says he's going to come in the clouds of heaven. Right. I'm jesting with you for a moment in hoping that it's profitable. I do not see the second coming in Psalm 18 at all. Psalm 18 was very important to be read last night because it gave you that image of God Almighty in the graphic way that he likes to present himself, riding on the clouds of heaven, thunder and lightning and hailstones and fire flying all around the place as he comes to rescue his little boy, David, because David called on him. Then the earth shook, baby. The earth shook. I want you to love that kind of language. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.